Today from the Global Lane, hardliner elected president in Iran. Is another Mideast war on the horizon? Putting a mass murderer at the helm uh, is not wise. Uh, this could be a critical juncture. U.S. Supreme Court and run. Congress and the Women's Health Protection Act. There was nothing in this legislation that was prote about protecting women or protecting health. It was all about abortion. Discontentment in the retail industry. Americans are quitting their jobs in record numbers. And they're saying, you know what? I'm going to take this summer off when you all get your act together. I'll, I'll come back to work. Grassroots rising against leftist wokeism and critical race theory in the USA. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Up front, Iran elects a hardliner as its next president. Ibrahim Raisi won 62% of the vote in the lowest turnout in the history of the Islamic Republic. During his first press conference as president-elect, Raisi said he will not meet with Joe Biden. And he insists Iran's ballistic missile program and its support of regional militias like Hezbollah are non-negotiable. Here to provide us with some insights is Benham Ben Talablu. Mr. Talablu is senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Ben, it's good to see you again. So first, many Iranians boycotted this election because reformers, I, I, I guess if you can call them that, reformers were not allowed to run. So tell us about this hardliner president-elect. Why do we have reason to be concerned? Well, always a pleasure to be with you again. We have multiple reasons. You know, this selection rather than election of, of Raisi to become the Islamic Republic's next president uh, has more to do with Khamenei, which is the country's supreme leader and ultimate decider on foreign and security policy matters, uh, more about his preferences and more about him restructuring the already very hardline regime uh, and preparing it for what may come uh, should he no longer uh, be amongst us uh, in this world, you could say. So he's preparing for a post-Khamenei Islamic Republic. And having a hardliner at the helm like Raisi can guarantee that the Islamic Republic remains on this revolutionary trajectory uh, abroad and remains equally repressive, if not more repressive, uh, at home. Well, most human rights organizations are concerned about that 1988 massacre and Raisi's role in it. Seems most Iranians, though, are most concerned about joblessness, inflation, and a worsening economy. So, how bad is life in the Iranian Republic? Oh, life is, is not good in the Islamic Republic, especially if you are uh, part of the classes of folks uh, who have been protesting from 2017 to present. You know, there is actually a very neat tie in there uh, to the election, which is. One of the key themes of protests from 2017 to 2020 uh, was a rejection of not just one faction or one president or one party, but of the entire system. Uh, the Iranian people have been protesting rather aggressively now, kind of grabbing the third rail with two hands. And the one slogan they chanted is, reformists, principalists, the jig is up. So Khamenei understands that the jig is up, so he has no problem engaging in this hardline consolidation. But the net result, of course, is a massive chasm between state and society in Iran and the movement of folks from reform towards revolution. So what Khamenei may have thought that in the short run, this is something that could secure his regime. But in the long run, I think uh, this could be a critical juncture with the lens of history uh, looking backward. And Raisi has pledged to stamp out corruption and improve the economy. But that seems like an almost impossible task, doesn't it, when Iran and he himself are still under harsh U.S. sanctions? Your thoughts? 
Also, the fact that uh, Raisi himself was the head of a, a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that basically functioned as an off-the-record slush fund for the country's supreme leader. Many of these folks get into office in Iran, like former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, a somewhat populist platform, uh, but in reality are involved in some of the greatest corruption schemes, embezzlement schemes in that country's uh, modern history. Um, so the Islamic Republic, in this sense, cannot reform itself. I think I think its banking sector, its financial sector, its energy sector is dominated by the worst of the worst, and that's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps influence, as well as the pervasive influence of its veterans in the economy and national politics. So these are more platitudes by Raisi, but ultimately this man is an agent of stasis, and that stasis is corruption. And renegotiation of the landmark 2015 nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, continues in Vienna. Those involved in those talks with Iran, China, Russia, France, Germany, and Britain say they're nearing a deal. So Iran is now at 60 percent, the 60 percent level of uranium enrichment, and it won't be long before they have enough for a nuclear bomb. So how likely is it that this agreement will prevent that from happening, Ben? Well, if the Biden administration, along with the international partners that you mentioned here, actually spends all this time resurrecting this fatally flawed and fast expiring uh, nuclear only deal, uh, then there is no guarantee at all, because this deal never really prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon anyway. It simply was a timeout uh, for some of Iran's most sensitive nuclear programs. And of course, now knowing what we know with the Israeli Atomic Archive, it didn't even pause the entire uh, Iranian program, because there is more undeclared sites, more undeclared facilities, more undeclared material than was previously known in 2015 or 2016. So there is very little strategic utility, in my view, in spending all this time, all this capital, resurrecting a deal that is so fatally flawed. And you can see the proof in the pudding. It's not just me telling you. The hard right flank in Iran that Raisi is from, uh, many of them actually covet this deal. Now, Raisi is talking about, at least during the presidential debates, he talked about being a better enforcer of the JCPOA. And his first press conference after getting elected, or after getting selected, I should say, uh, was about not extending it, not making it longer and stronger and broader like the Biden team wants. So in many ways, spending all this time, energy and capital, particularly while the Iranian people are suffering, and particularly when the regime feels so comfortable putting a mass murderer at the helm, uh, is not wise. So full steam ahead towards nuclear development. What might this new hardline president then and a potential renegotiated nuclear deal with Iran mean for Israel and the United States? Well, when it comes to the foreign and security policy, it's, it's really more a question of volume. It's not like he's going to be able to change a trajectory overnight, nor does he even intend to. But he can make a bad situation even worse. The Iranian Supreme Leader gives guidelines, goalposts, policy, end states, directions, and red lines. But really, there is a certain measure of latitude afforded to each president. Um, so you could probably expect to see a lot of the same regional escalation and a lot of the same regional worries that the U.S. force posture is going to have in places like Iraq, in places like the Persian Gulf, that the Israelis are going to have to continue to deal with this situation where the Iranians are trying to amass more and more militias and, and, and men uh, on uh, Israel's borders, north and south, of course, and arming them, training them, equipping them. So the situation, even from the non-nuclear perspective, uh, is not good in the short term. And, and even more cyber uh, warfare here. I understand that the Iran says the United States uh, acted to shut down some of their uh, news sites. 
Well, this may be uh, some good news in the world of deplatforming for those of us who are watching uh, the, the more digital space. Uh, there are entities, as you know, that take advantage of the fact that they have a .com uh, domain. Uh, the U.S. Uh, government has broad authority, of course, this, to rid some of these entities that may be uh, pressing for incitement or supporting terror or be connected to state sponsors of terrorism. Press TV is one good example uh, of a website that was recently removed uh, from the .com, according to the U recent uh, press release from the USG. Okay, Ben and Ben Talablu, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. Thank you for keeping Thank us you. informed and sharing your time and insights. Pleasure. With more justices now considered to be pro-life sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, liberals fear SCOTUS may soon overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 court ruling allowing abortion on demand. So they've introduced legislation in Congress to protect abortion rights, no matter what the court decides. It's known as the Women's Health Protection Act. Our next guest recently testified against the legislation in Congress. That's because she survived a failed abortion attempt in 1977. Melissa Oden is here to tell us about that and the proposed law. She's founder of the Abortion Survivors Network. So, Melissa, I want you to share your story with us, but first... What did you tell Congress about the proposed legislation, the Women's Health Protection Act? There was nothing in this legislation that was prote about protecting women or protecting health. It was all about abortion, and that legislation is radical, and it is not the will of the people. They, they're leaving out unborn women, uh, little ones who will Absolutely. become women. Uh, how about protecting their lives? Now, with Democrats holding a majority in both the Senate and the House... Also, with a pro-abortion president sitting in the White House, it looks like this is a done deal, or is it? Definitely not a done deal. This isn't the first time they've introduced this type of legislation. This is certainly the most radical we've seen it yet. They, you know, feel like Roe is definitely on shaky ground, and they want to get ahead of that game. Went so far as saying they don't believe the states should have a right to uh, restrict abortion access. So they are doing this reactively, and I think we should find hope in that. Well, what are, what are they really trying to accomplish here with this? I mean, just and run the Supreme Court? Absolutely. Yeah, take away the will of the people. They want abortion access unrestricted on demand without apology. They want it to be normal. They are disregarding the not only the health and the rights of children in the womb, but the health and the rights of women. This is something we should all be concerned about. Well, what can our viewers do about it? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are undecided members of Congress who could turn this around. Which ones? Well, it's really important that Senator Blumenthal's office hears from you. He chaired that committee. But every member of Congress needs to hear uh, that we don't support this kind of legislation and that we need to do more to you know, support women in need. Abortion is not the solution to any problems that people are facing in our world. Well, this, this is amazing because it seems to me it's coming at a time when more and more Americans, uh, young and old, uh, female, male, are opposed to abortion. So aren't we seeing a trend where people are saying, wait a minute, technology is showing us that this is actually a, a child in the womb? Yes, and that's certainly my story. I am, you know, I'll age myself really quickly. I'm 43, um, but I was one of those babies back in 1977 who survived an abortion procedure. My birth mother, Ruth, was told she was maybe 18 to 20 weeks pregnant with me when she had a saline infusion abortion. I soaked in that toxic salt solution for five days, being poisoned and scalded. 
And they believe that the abortion had been successful when her labor was induced on the fifth day. And yes, that abortion took longer than what it should have. Uh, but they believe the abortion had been successful. And that's the day I was accidentally born alive. We know the truth about life. Science is clear. Biblically, we know the truth about life. Tell us a little more about that. I understand your mom, uh, your, your birth mom, uh, didn't really want to have an abortion. What happened? That's right. Uh, that's part of what I testified to about coercion and force when it comes to abortion. I now have a relationship with my birth mother, Ruth. Our story is pretty, um, just such a God story. Uh, she didn't know for over 30 years that I had survived that abortion. Uh, she was told that day that it had been successful and, you know, was told it's hideous. It's a monster. Don't look at it after I was delivered. She didn't know if I had been a little boy or a little girl. And she lived with such incredible regret. And she was co not just coerced into that abortion, but literally forced against her will. She was a college student. My grandmother, her mother, was a prominent nurse in their community and forced that abortion upon her, bypassing hospital regulations and procedures. And no matter how many times I testify before Congress, there are always people who try to say, oh, you know, you know, she's not relevant. This was a, a forced abortion. She's not relevant. You know, that type of abortion procedure isn't performed anymore. Uh, but we are always relevant to this conversation. And I testify not only to give a voice to the unborn and other survivors, but to women like my birth mother, Ruth, who deserve to be heard. And it sure seems that God had a plan for your life. How has that shaped your worldview, and what role does faith play in your life, Melissa? I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the hand of the Lord who saved me in the womb. I truly believe that. There's no medical reason why I'm alive today. And I've known Jesus from my youngest age. I'm grateful my parents, my adoptive parents, raised me to, you know, have a heart of, of mercy and love towards even my biological parents. And I could not have showed up for that hearing. I could not do all the work that I do in healing and empowering survivors and fighting for the unborn if it wasn't for God who goes before me. I'm called to do this. And you're helping a lot of women out there. Okay, Melissa Odin, thank you for sharing your time and insights today. We appreciate it. Ditching jobs for something better. 649,000 American retail workers quit their jobs in April. The U.S. Labor Department says that's the biggest one-month job exodus since tracking began 20 years ago. And twice as many retail jobs, one million, are available now than one year ago at the height of the COVID pandemic. Overall, 3% of workers left their jobs in April. So what's going on? Dan Celia, Financial Issues National Radio and TV host, has some answers for us. Dan, it's good to see you. So why are so many American workers, especially in retail, handing in their notices? I think a lot of it is there is still uncertainty, number one, about whether they're going to be able to keep working and stay in their job. They're very concerned about. Some of them are afraid to let go of the benefits they're receiving because they don't want to have to reapply and go through all of that again. And some of them are saying it's summertime. I've been penned up for a long time. I'm not going back to work till September. And a lot of people are saying, you know what? This is a nightmare. I don't have the hours I was promised or I'm working way more hours than I bargained for because of the understaffing. So you've got some discontentment, particularly in the retail sector. And they're saying, you know what? 
I'm going to take the summer off when you all get your act together. I'll, I'll come back to work, but I'm still getting my benefits. So it's a huge, huge problem for the economy. Uh, and, and I'm more concerned, Gary, for the smaller retailers and the, and the restaurants. I mean, these guys are hanging on by the skin of their teeth now. And this has been a real problem with them trying to open the doors. And, and help wanted signs everywhere, Dan. I see them everywhere. everywhere I go. And is it a matter of money, work schedule? Why are American workers leaving uh, their lower paid jobs? I think it's a matter of money. You know, I, I really think it's that more than, more than anything else. People are saying, Gary, that, well, you know, these people just don't want to work. You know, these aren't bad people. These are people that are thinking logically about taking care of their families. So listen, I'm making, uh, let's say they're making $30,000 a year. And they do the math and they say tax-free income of $32,000 a year if I don't go back to work. I have a family to think about. I have to watch my kids. I don't, you know, I don't want to pay that, go back to work, make less money, and, and pay for childcare. There's so many things like that. And until the government comes out, the federal government now is incentivizing, wants to incentivize people with signing bonus bonuses to go back to work. Okay, that's fine. What happens when that's over, when that's spent? Now they're still making less money than they were making with the federal subs subsidy on unemployment. It doesn't make mathematical sense for them to all rush back to work. Well, economists warned that raising the minimum wage would help fuel inflation, and the PPI for finished goods is expected to jump to 6% this year. Overall inflation rate about a little over 3%. Is a jump simply as a result of coming out of this pandemic, or is something else at play here? No, this isn't transitory. I know the Federal Reserve wants to think the inflation is transitory. It really isn't. It's here permanently. And, and a good example is that is, of that is what we were just talking about. I was talking to a guy that has six restaurants. He's got to close two of them because his cooks, who were making about $22 an hour on, on average, are saying, I'm not coming back unless I get 35 so he's made a decision to close two, keep the other four open, and use that additional money to pay his cook so he can try to survive and grow again. That's inflation. He's not go you're not going to go back to the cooks and say, hey, by the way, you're going back to 22 now. Everything is fine. It doesn't work like that. And the wage, the wage inflation is here to stay. It's not going to go away. And they have to understand, you know, we have to understand that. Uh, that we have these high fuel prices. All of the goods that you and I buy, Gary, at the grocery store, most of them get there by truck. The the trucker, the truck driving, the trucking companies are running into huge wage inflation, and and they're paying a lot more for diesel fuel, and they've got to cut back on their routes, and they're really in a bind. And so, the shortage of those workers, I'm, those truck drivers, I'm sure that means uh, they'll have to pay more to get to attract more of them. And then they exactly. pass that on to the consumers. Okay, Dan, we're out of time. I'm sorry. Dan Celia, Financial Issues National Radio and Television host. We appreciate your in insights. Thank you, Dan, for being with us. The Great American Pushback is underway. 
A grassroots movement of citizens fed up with leftists forcing wokeism on the public is spreading to school board and city council meetings across the USA. You've likely seen video of young people and adults opposing critical race theory in Loudoun County, Virginia. Recently in Colorado, citizens defiantly stood up and recited the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance after the mayor of Silverton unilaterally banned it at a town trustee meeting. I'm sorry, but the truth of the United States of America and its truth of the republic which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Uh, I'd note that that's out of order. And uh, we did have a one-strike policy. I'm not going to ask everyone to leave tonight, but if something like that happens again, we will. And in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, resident Simon Campbell called out the Pensbury School Board for censoring comments of citizens opposing the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. I've got news for you, School Board President Benito Mussolini. Your power does not supersede that of the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment rights of the citizens of this great nation. Let's be very, very clear who has the power. Mr. It Campbell, is not government policy. Do not warn me or do not interrupt my time. Campbell went on to cite the 1964 U.S. Supreme Court decision in New York Times versus Sullivan. It states that, quote, this nation is founded on the profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and that it may well include vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. Then Campbell said this. That's constitutional case law in this nation. I don't have to be nice to you. Nobody behind me has to be nice to you. If you don't like living in the United States of America, then you can all move to Russia, Cuba, or China. This is the First Amendment. Yes, folks, it is the First Amendment. You might not like what people say, especially those voicing opposing views, but America is a great nation because we believe in the people's power over our leaders and the right of all citizens to speak openly and freely, no matter how offensive their speech may be. So more Americans are now coming forward at the grassroots, demanding their constitutional God-given rights. They're opposing this leftist wokeism. They know if speech censorship goes unchallenged, then eventually the Constitution collapses under the weight of a crumbling First Amendment, and our free society will no longer be free. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our local broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.